A Southwest 737-700 runs off the end of the runway at Chicago Midway Airport. How did some miscalculations and bad calls cause this plane to run onto a road just beyond the airport? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we're tired of quarantine. (laughs) Specifically Miranda, but also us. (laughs) At least you guys get to go to work, because you're essential. I get to stay home with my family. And you're four weeks ahead of schedule for teaching. Yeah, that's how bored I am. (laughs) Uh, I hope everyone's staying safe and staying healthy. I made us masks. They're pretty awesome. Anyway, all right, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Southwest Airlines Flight 1248. This was recommended by the same guy who recommended the last Midway incident, Nicholas Relstab. Thanks, Nicholas. Thanks. We enjoy getting your recommendations. Yeah. This was uh, one that I already knew relatively well. This was also relatively, relatively recent. This was 15 years ago. And a lot of people probably remember this one, as a matter of fact. This happened on December 8th of 05, 2005. That was 15 years ago. I know. That does not seem like 15 years ago. I know. That's weird. I know. That was my grandfather's birthday. Nice. How old was he in 2005? 70, even. Really? Yeah. He old. Wow. Is he 85 now? Or will be? Uh, He will be on December 8th. Wow. Wow. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Happy birthday, Lolo. Here's a plane crash. (laughs) So this was a Southwest flight, so guess what? This was a 737. I was going to make a joke about, you know how you can figure out what's at 737? Just look for Southwest. Yeah, their their stuff is only 737. They only fly 737. So for those of you out there who are beginning plane spotters, it, if it has Southwest colors, it'll always be a 737. Yep. Of some kind. Until further notice, they have been for an extremely long time. They had a couple of variances from that. However, those were very, very uh, rare. Few and far between. Yeah, absolutely. They have been almost entirely Boeing 737 their entire lifespan and are right now. And there's talks that that might change, but for now, they are still 737. So this was a 737-700 with the tail number November 471 Whiskey November. This was a scheduled flight from Baltimore to Chicago Midway. The captain for this flight was Bruce Sutherland. He was 59 years old. He had 15,000 hours total, of which 4,500 hours were on the 737. The first officer for the flight was Stephen Oliver. He was 34 years old. He had 8,500 hours total, of which 2,000 hours were on the 737. So both were relatively experienced on the 737 as well as in general. There were 98 passengers and five crew on this flight. This was to be the first flight of a three-day trip for the airplane. The pilots had thoroughly read through the weather reports for their route while at Baltimore, which had informed them that there was snow and icing conditions at Midway. The flight was delayed at Baltimore for two hours due to weather at Midway. I mean, shocker. It's, it's Chicago. Chicago, and it's in the Midwest. the winter. And, yeah, winter. Yeah. So, not surprising nope, at nope. all. Nope. Pretty standard. Like I said, the flight was delayed at Baltimore for two hours for weather at Midway. The crew kept a close eye on the weather at Midway while they were on their delay. They finally departed Baltimore at 5.58 p.m. Eastern Time. Before they had departed, the crew had received two release documents. Flight releases are literally just, here is your flight plan, your expected weather, and your expected uh, alternates, all these, all the information you need for your flight. They had received two of these release documents while on their delay which included weather reports. A third release document was prepared just before their departure, but was not delivered to them before departure, which would have updated them on their landing runway, which changed at Midway, as well as the runway conditions and the winds at the destination. Wait, so they didn't know which runway they had to... They didn't know of the change. Not by the time they departed, they didn't know of the change. Well, the tower probably would tell them eventually, right? Right. So this mattered little, however, because they did receive further information while in flight 
that further told them of the worsening conditions at Midway and of the runway change. Oh, okay. Cool. Yep. Reports of breaking action, which is how easy it is to stop an airplane on a runway. And will be the source of a lot of conversation. Yep. Were mixed as given to the flight crew by air traffic control, other aircraft, and the weather reports. Wait, so other aircraft have issues too? So, yeah, most of the reports on breaking condition come from other airplanes. Oh, because they land before this plane. Right, they're called PIREPs or pilot reports. I will also get into that later. The reports given to air traffic control had changed to fair breaking action for the first half of the runway to poor breaking action for the second half. The crew. so the the half of the runway was good, half the runway was bad? Yep, that's basically what they were saying. Half the runway was okay, and half of the runway was bad. Oh, no. Yep. The crew discussed in flight how to use the airplane's auto-braking system, as this was to be the first time that either crew member were to use the system. It requires calculations to adjust a knob, which provides an automatic amount of braking to the wheels on the airplane which would allow the crew to focus on flying the airplane and using the thrust reverses and spoilers to slow down the airplane upon touchdown. Uh, so, were th- is this just the first time they've done it? Have they been trained on it before? No. Kind of. Oh, well, okay. I'm so assuming in, that we're going to get into it in your part. We we'll will. Get into it's it. in okay. brief, but uh, but the, break- the auto-braking system isn't really... It's such a simple system in reality as well that it... It was kind of an afterthought. Let's put it that way. It's supposed to be an aid to them, but really, it's literally, if you look in the cockpit, it's right next to the landing gear lever, and it's a knob, and it just says auto-braking, and it has a one-through-whatever setting, depending on the airplane, and each setting just adjusts it higher to the amount of auto-brake the airplane applies upon touchdown. Does it apply it when the main landing gear touched down? Or when the main and the nose touch down? It will apply it as soon as the nose touches down. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. You don't want it. I know. Because you ha- don't want it to slam the nose down. Yeah. I know. That and would, it... we, we had a conversation about another mechanism that does the same thing. Yep. Okay. Yep. My point is, should they have been trained on this? Was this part of the problem? We'll get into it. Oh, good. <laughs> Yeah. I like when you. I totally like when you say that to me. I know. I oh, also boy. love when you jump ahead in our script. <laughs> it's not on purpose, okay? My mind is making tunnels, pathways, pathways, pathways. <laughs> to be clear, they didn't use it wrong. Okay, that's good. I yeah. guess. <laughs> yep. I'm, I, I assume that's a good thing. Yep. Okay, moving on. At six thirty-three p.m. and seventeen seconds Central Time, the airplane was nearing Midway. At an altitude of 10,000 feet, an air traffic control issued the pilot's instructions to enter a holding pattern while the snowplow crews cleared the runway. Runway 31 Center, 31C. While the flight was in a holding pattern, the first officer, or pilot not flying, or pilot monitoring, as the captain was pilot flying, entered the weather and runway conditions into the onboard performance computer, or the OPC, to determine the landing distance required by the aircraft upon touchdown. The reported weather included a tailwind component of 8 knots, which meant that there was 8 knots of wind coming from the rear of the airplane as it touched down on the as it would touch down on the runway. So, 8 knots coming from the rear. Okay, most people think, "Cool, don't you want it to push the airplane?" No. No, cuz you're you trying to don't. stop. <laughs> right. And actually, in all conditions whether you're taking off or landing, you would rather have the wind at the head because you can add that to your speed because then you're able to take off and land at a slower speed, meaning you need less runway to either take off or land. You want the wind at the nose of the airplane. So they had this 8-knot tailwind component, which all of Southwest Airlines' 737s were limited to 10 knots of tailwind component for landing. Wait. Yes. What? Yes. Okay. Yep. Wait, limited to 10, which means if it's over 10, they can't land? That's correct. If it's over 10, they can't land. This was 8 knots, meaning that this was technically within the company policies for landing. That said, Southwest Airlines does not allow landings with 5 knots or more on runways with poor braking conditions. Oh, no. (laughs) Remember that the runway was not technically poor conditions. It was partially poor conditions. It was mixed. Well, half of it was bad. The other half was okay. Right. Which probably means... You should err on the side of caution. You would think. You would think. Listen, I get that that's not what happened or we wouldn't be talking about it. (laughs) So, 
The pilots did err on the side of caution. The pilots discussed the conditions and began preparing for an alternate landing airport, as they believed that they would not be able to land at Midway. The first officer entered multiple scenarios into the onboard performance computer, including fair runway conditions and poor runway conditions, as the OPC did not allow for mixed reports to be entered into the computer. So, in other words, you can either enter poor or fair. You can't enter both. It kind of makes like sense. There should be an in between, though. You would think, but not really. It kind of makes sense because you get good, fair, and poor. And you want to err on the side of caution. Right. Okay, that's true. So he entered both to try it out and see what both conditions gave him. The fair condition had the airplane stopping in 560 feet short of the end of the runway, and the poor conditions had them stopping within 40 feet of the end of the runway. Ooh, that's ooh. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean. 40 feet is not very much it's not. leeway. It's not, but with but it's within company policy, believe it or not. I'll get into it. Yep. The pilots decided that they would divert to either Kansas City or St. Louis as an alternate if the tailwind component increased to 10 knots or higher, or if braking condition reports changed to poor braking, braking conditions overall. At 6.54 p.m. in 10 seconds... Air Traffic Control began providing the flight with vectors to land on Runway 31 Center, along with descent instructions. At that time, the ATIS information was reporting 11 knots of wind. They did not get the ATIS, though. Oh, no. I didn't know that part. Oh, no. (laughs) That's not their landing speed, though. That's not the landing wind speed. That's still... uh... Yep. The Air Traffic Control cleared them to intercept the localizer... And less than a minute later, air traffic control cleared them for approach and informed them that the runway conditions were fair, but poor at the end. So still basically the same thing. The crew then contacted the tower controller at 7.07 p.m. and 53 seconds, who advised them to continue for runway 31C and that winds were at 090 at 9. So in other words, they had now had nine knots of wind coming from the tail. So it only increased by one. So they probably figured it wouldn't make that much of a difference. Yeah. He also told them that braking action was reported good for the first half and poor for the second half. Good and fair are two different things in aviation. Yeah, so were they getting, I'm guessing they were getting mixed signals then. They were getting mixed signals. So they didn't know, is it good, is it fair? Right. I mean, they knew the second half was poor, right? Right. But good and fair, clearly, as you said, are two different things. Yep. Exactly. that getting them mixed up could potentially be dangerous. And mind you, these are reports that are generally coming from other airplanes, which means that the the crews, we're hearing this basically coming from other airplanes, and they're going, okay, we are not a 100% fully loaded airplane. Other airplanes are managing to land. We should be able to do this, too. At 7.12 p.m. and 28 seconds, the first officer received their landing clearance. The airplane touched down at an airspeed of 124 knots on the center line. Speed brakes deployed and brake pressure increased within one second to the wheels. Both pilots described the touchdown as firm. As the, firm as our St. Louis one? I don't know. Could be. <laughs> There's. It's not really quantitative. It's not. Well, the, <laughs> I mean, they, they planted, I'm assuming. Yeah, basically. That's, that's kind of what they're saying, yes. They didn't bounce. They didn't bounce. It was a solid touchdown on the runway. It wasn't a smooth landing. Yeah. It was just firm. The first officer sensed a decrease in the airplane's deceleration. Okay, that is a that is a confusing phrase, but he they sensed that they stopped slowing down as fast as they were initially. Yeah, they weren't slowing down as quickly as they should have been. Right. And he said, brakes, 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 and manually applied the brakes himself. He then looked at the throttle console and noted that the thrust reversers were still stowed about 15 seconds after touchdown. Hold up, hold up, hold up. No, 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 no. They didn't do that when they touched down. They didn't put. They didn't activate the thrust we'll reversers. Get in, we'll get into that too. Oh my gosh! That's so what? What? So he initiated the deployment of the thrust reversers himself to the maximum setting. Full reverser deployment occurred at 18 seconds after touchdown, only about 500 feet from the end of the runway. The airplane ran off the departure end of runway 31C and continued through the blast fence, a navigational aid antenna, across an airport road through an airport boundary fence, and onto an adjacent public roadway. The airplane struck a northbound car on that roadway before coming to rest near the intersection. So, we talked about this with Midway before, but Midway's in the middle of a bunch of houses and stuff? Yeah, it's in the middle of the city. Like, it's in the middle of a neighborhood, and it is, I mean, 
all the runway ends are unbelievably close to I'm surprised the they intersections. only hit one car, honestly. They didn't, technically. They actually hit two, I think. Oh. But the report only called for one. However, if you look in the pictures, there's actually two even in the diagram. There's one under the airplane, and there's one to the side of the airplane. The first officer performed the emergency evacuation checklist immediately after coming to a stop. While the captain evacuated the passengers in the cabin, the passengers evacuated through the forward left and the right rear cabin doors. Now, the forward left was probably the easier of the two because the airplane came to rest on the nose because the nose gear collapsed. So the rear of the airplane was high. But the slides deployed, yeah. The slides did not deploy, I don't think. What? Why? They would have had to at the rear. I don't know. Any of the pictures I've ever seen didn't show any slides. I don't know. How'd they get out the back of the airplane, then? Let's look for a picture. They just jumped the 40 feet to the ground. (laughs) It was more than 40 feet at that point, probably. There were not. There was not a slide. No slide. So how the heck did they get out the back? They, because there was no fire, I would say there was probably no urgency to evacuate that way. They brought stairs. Oh. (laughs) I was like, there's no way they jumped onto the ground. But it doesn't make much sense because that would just take too much time. I would think they would just want to get off of that thing. Well, Um, don't they have... Okay, so I... Unless, wait a minute. I'm a little bit naive about this, but... When you open the doors in emergency evacuation, don't they They, automatically come out? They do not. So they have to be triggered by something. It depends, because they will automatically deploy if the doors are armed. So... the doors armed. The doors may have been disarmed for the evacuation. Okay. I still don't understand how they exited the right rear. Me neither, but it does, in the pictures, you can actually see that the door is open. I don't see a slide anywhere, but I do see pictures where they had the stairs there. Anyways, Hold so on. they had well, they had stairs, so that makes sense. I'm just concerned that the slide. Yeah, they deploy. but they brought stairs there. I mean, that just doesn't. I don't know how they got them there so quickly. Yeah, especially since it went through the airport boundary fence and stuff. I don't yeah, know. I got it. Okay, the captain instructed a flight attendant to open the left front door and told the first officer to help passengers at the bottom of that door's evacuation slide. He used a megaphone to advise passengers that they should evacuate through the front of the airplane. According to City of Chicago records, about 14 minutes after the accident, ARFF, Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting, personnel positioned mobile stairs at the right rear door and assisted passengers in exiting through that door as well. Oh. 14 minutes later, though, that's still a long that's time. That's a long time to not evacuate. Yeah. Yep, got it. Okay. All passengers and crews survived this accident. 18 had minor injuries, including one cabin crew member, as well as three injuries on the ground. I'm surprised that no one died. Three minor injuries on the ground. Wait. One fatality did occur, and it was a six-year-old boy in a car in the passenger seat that had been traveling on that road. Oh. The mother who was with him driving that car had uh, major injuries as well, but she survived. Wait, he was in the passenger seat? Uh, I don't know if he's in the passenger or in the rear. I think the rear of the car was what was in the report as having been crushed. Oh, it would make sense, I guess, if he was in the... Either way, he probably wouldn't have survived because he's so small, but I was just making sure. Was the one that's underneath the car the one that had the boy in it? Yes. You mean under the plane? Yes. Yes. Because that's underneath the plane. Because it struck a light pole and it got jammed underneath the airplane when it came to a stop. Yikes. So... As for wreckage, the airplane had a substantial but repairable amount of damage, believe it or not, and it turns out it was repaired after this event, and it's still in use today. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Under a new tail number, November 286 Whiskey November. Now We looked it up. It is still flying. Yep, it is still flying. And it actually... So the biggest thing for me is I am a little bit surprised they repaired the airplane, only because they had so many. This has got to be one of their older ones, then. Probably. And this airplane, I mean... It just, to me, if you have so many airplanes, I get it. This one was probably newer at the time, but still going through all the repairs on it, that is that is one heck of a lot of work. Also because the airplane was pretty severely damaged with the on the leading edges and the engines. Why? Uh, because it struck a bunch of fences. Oh, yeah, <laughs> If yeah. you recall. It struck fences. I guess my brain can't comprehend how tall the fences are compared to the wings and the... It makes sense uh, yes. that the landing gear collapsed going yes. through all those fences. Yes, that also, makes sense. I also thought it was interesting. The nose wheel came to rest after breaking a fire hydrant. 
Yeah. Okay. It broke a fire hydrant. So that meant that there was also a fire hydrant that probably pierced the fuselage. That, to me, would be bad enough to want to... But I don't know. If it went into the landing gear, if it went into the wheel well, maybe it didn't do a whole lot of damage. Yeah. And I do know that it did severe damage to the wings, severe damage to the engines. And I would think by sitting on the nose that it would generally... That weight would be enough to probably crumple some of the, the fuselage. But who knows? I don't I don't know well, for sure. It's still flying, so they it's still flying. It, yeah. Obviously they spent the money and the time to fix it, so good for them. Break. Kay. Break to break. Break to break. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back from that amazing advertisement. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, the investigation was performed by the NTSB. Shocker. I'm sure everyone's shocked. (laughs) Nah, I thought it would be done by Fiji. The first and perhaps most obvious factor in this investigation was the weather conditions. It had been snowing consistently that day at Midway and was doing so at the time of the accident with 10 inches having accumulated in the area. All the pictures of the airplane that I've seen have it covered in snow, so you know that it was still snowing. Just another justification for making sure you dress adequately when you go fly? We've talked about it before. Just reemphasizing. However, Runway 31 Center had been cleared and de-iced, such that four other Southwest Airlines 737-700s, specifically, had landed on that same runway in the 20 or so minutes preceding the accident flight. It was possible to land and stop with sufficient time and runway length left, as it had been proven by these previous planes. Now, should the pilots have landed at Midway? Before every flight, an alternate or several alternates are selected should anything happen that would render the intended destination unlandable. Well, and they had those. Yes. And unlandable is a technical term, I swear. Totally. The pilots were made aware of the inclement weather, as we had discussed, before they ever left Baltimore, and they were receiving ongoing weather reports while in flight. In fact, most of their conversation in the cockpit consisted of their plan to land. At the time, and I don't know if this is still the case, Southwest Airlines required their pilots to make a landing distance calculation in advance of actually landing and did not allow them to land if they had a negative margin, which means they would need more landing distance than the runway provided. Additionally, they allowed any positive landing margin. Any. And that's probably not safe. If your landing margin was one foot, you could land per Southwest Airlines policy. I, I, uh, that seems iffy. That's what it was. Um, As Nick had mentioned, they had calculated their stopping margins at 560 feet during fair braking conditions and 40 feet during poor braking conditions, which they were concerned about. Let's put that out there. They, They knew it wasn't great. Additionally, it was company policy to have up to five knots of tailwind during poor braking conditions, and the latest information indicated a tailwind of eight knots. The pilots verbally decided not to land if the braking action was reported as poor for the full length of the runway. Yep. Which didn't happen. As we know, air traffic control told the pilots it was good or fair for the first half of the runway and poor for the second half. However, he did not specify what kind of aircraft reported these conditions as is FAA protocol. Yep. Oh, no. Moreover, air traffic control did not tell the pilots that he had received a different runway condition report from a smaller plane that described braking action as poor for the entire runway. Uh, what? Yeah. Because it depends on the plane. Yes, it does. Well, okay, but what do they mean by smaller aircraft? Are we talking about a personal aircraft, or are we talking about a smaller airliner? More than likely, a private jet. Okay, so that's... Probably significantly smaller than a 737. About half of Midway's traffic, well, less than halfway of Midway's traffic, but another significant portion is business and and, uh, private jet aircraft. Well, I'm glad you know, because that's literally all I knew was smaller aircraft. So all I can say is more than likely, because I don't know. That's fair. The NTSB concludes that the Midway air traffic controller did not follow FAA guidance. This led to the pilots making a poor decision regarding even attempting to land at Midway. 
Southwest Airlines procedures did require the pilots to err on the side of conservative if given a mixed runway condition, as they were given. So they should have treated the situation as though the whole runway was poor braking conditions. And they didn't. Therefore, the NTSB concludes that the pilots were not in compliance with the airline's policies. They later stated that they were unaware of the company's guidance regarding mixed braking action reports. What? Furthermore, the four other planes I had spoke of also had the same report, so they also all weren't in compliance with Southwest Airline procedure. It turns out that they were just giving poor guidance? Southwest? Basically, they weren't making this publicly very well known. Among their pilots. Right. So it wasn't... It was written policy, but it wasn't... It wasn't specifically trained for to err on the side of caution. Basically. To assume it would be poor, even if it's mixed. Yeah. 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 Okay. Because all of them did it, so they were all in violation of policy. As if none of this was enough, investigators looked over the training manuals and found that training on mixed conditions was not routine, and the flight operations manual didn't mention it at all. So they didn't train on it routinely... Maybe a couple times, but not ongoing. And it wasn't in the flight operations manual at all. Oh, that's not good. Especially because that's a more realistic runway condition than not. Especially in places like Chicago, where weather changes all the time. Or here, in Denver. Where weather changes all the time. Now, how did the pilots calculate these stopping distances and margins? Traditionally speaking... Pilots use a series of tabular charts to make these determinations, but more modern planes have an onboard performance computer, or OPC as Nick had mentioned, which is what the pilots had used to calculate their margins. What they were unaware of, though, is that these numbers aren't law, so to speak. So they can be flexible. There were some internal calculations that made these numbers ever so slightly inaccurate, and by ever so slightly I mean somewhat wildly. For one... If the tailwind exceeded the allowed for five knots under poor braking conditions, the computer didn't use the actual tailwind speed and stuck with the five knots. What? And, and there is no indication on the screen that it doesn't use the actual tailwind speed. So... It calculated assuming a five-knot tailwind. So what you're telling me is they didn't have the 40 feet at the end of the runway. Clearly not. Because... Nope. Given what happened? If they had... If they did, they probably would have been able to stop, Correct. Correct. If they had used the 8-knot tailwind, the stopping margin would have been negative 260 feet. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Which is about what happened. Yeah, as it turns out. The pilots were also unaware that these stopping margins included the reverse thrust calculation, but it only did this in the 737-700 model. So if they had previously flown an old Southwest Airlines 737, like a 300 or a 500, those did not include this calculation. Right. The 700 was the newer version, and it did include that calculation. And to that point, there is a previously issued recommendation at the bottom of this report, as in it had been recommended before this by the NTSB, and they are restating their recommendation to immediately prohibit all Part 121, which are airline and uh, transport type aircraft operators, from using reverse thrust credit in landing performance calculations. Interesting. Is that because the thrust reversers have to be activated directly on touchdown for that to be accurate? Basically. For they one. don't. They're saying there's so many different situations where the thrust reversers either can't be used fully, can't be used at all, or just shouldn't be used. And in those situations, you need to not forget that that cannot be calculated. Yep. So they're saying just don't calculate it at all. Plan to not have it. So they made Because this... you have it, great. So they made this worse because they didn't automatically, when they landed, uh, have they it. They thought they, it, using the thrust reverser would give them several hundred more feet. So right. they so they didn't know that this included the thrust reversers. Correct. Right. So they assumed that they would have more of a margin of error. Yep. Oh, no. The okay. South, some Southwest Airlines pilots that were interviewed, including the accident crew, thought all 737s did not include the reverse thrust factor, and therefore using reverse thrust would give them several hundred more feet of stopping margin, when in reality, that did not work on the 737-700. I wonder why Boeing made that different for the 700. They it thought was their they new were gen. Ma- they thought they were making the next generation smarter. I mean, in, okay, yeah, it's more efficient, to be. It's supposed sure. to be calculating the exact distance you will stop yeah but like you said if you put the full thrust reverser thing in there and you don't use the thrust reverser that's giving them wrong information yep right 
Between these two factors, the OPC calculation did not give the pilots an accurate depiction of their stopping margins, and the NTSB concluded that if it had been more accurate and if they had known about the computer already considering the thrust reverser, they may have elected to divert to another airport. Side note, investigators also found that Southwest Airlines' programming of the computer was less conservative than Boeing, whose computers calculated negative 260 feet for fair braking action and negative 2,070 feet for poor braking action. Yep. So Boeing's calculations would have really put them out of tolerance there. Yeah. So when interviewed, the accident captain insisted that he had actually tried activating the thrust reversers, but failed to do so as he was having mechanical difficulty with it. He said it was difficult to use. What? Yeah, that's pretty much what investigators thought, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's what we all thought. Like, he couldn't, like, physically do it? Or... Because the first officer did, right? Yeah. So then why was the... Why did the captain have an issue? I guess I'm just a little bit confused. On so that. is everybody. Yeah. So this is a little bit of um, personal opinion on my part. I think he was lying. I think maybe he thought I he think tried he, to use it. I think he forgot. And we'll get into why he. I think he forgot. But okay. I think he forgot. The previous four Southwest Airlines 737-700s all activated thrust reversers immediately after the nose gear touched down. That's why they were able to land. And these, coupled with some calculations, helped the investigators determine that the accident flight would have been able to stop if they had activated maximum thrust reverse on touchdown and held it. Also, investigators found that there was no way that the thrust reversers had problems as the captain had reported. And he didn't say on the CVR that he had difficulties. He did not verbally indicate in any way, shape, or form that he had difficulties with the thrust reversers. Right. Which you should do. When you're having issues. And neither did the previous 10 flight crews on this plane. Right. There's a recommendation that comes out of this, and I'll talk about that later. Okay. Now for those dang auto brakes. How did those contribute to this accident? They were new to this crew. To this point, Southwest Airlines had not released any official training on use of auto brakes because the whole fleet was not yet equipped across the board with the auto brakes, and they were continually releasing bulletins alerting the pilots to the delays of when the training would start. The most recent bulletin came out on December 8th, the day of the accident, notifying pilots that training and such would begin on December 12th, four days later. Okay, here's my thing on that. Even if the, f- the entire fleet doesn't have the auto brakes, you should probably train them on it anyway, because eventually they'll have a plane with auto brakes. Let me tell you my next sentence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, Southwest Airlines had provided a self-study training module on the system and its procedures. Both pilots had completed the module, but did not have experience physically using it and were hesitant to use it for the first time in this instance. They eventually opted to use it and did so on the maximum setting during landing. Now, I'm going to read this next part verbatim. It's kind of long, but it was wonderful verbiage, so I'm giving it full credit where credit is due. Before Southwest Airlines' new auto brake procedures took effect, procedures requiring the flying pilot to manually apply wheel brakes and deploy the thrust reverser simultaneously as soon as possible after touchdown. However, with the use of auto brakes, only one of these two tasks was required at touchdown. The prompt manual application of wheel brakes was no longer necessary. Research indicates that carrying out new procedures requires more effort and cognitive resources than does carrying out routine procedures and limits the number of tasks that can be carried out simultaneously. Because of the pilot's concerns regarding the auto brakes and their unfamiliarity with the system's operation, it would have been natural for them to focus on the auto brake system's performance after the plane touched down. So that's why you think he forgot? Yeah. Is he was so worried about the auto brake system, he forgot to... And because normally he would do one with the other, when he lost one of them, he didn't do the other. Okay, that makes sense to me, though. And it also makes sense why the first officer didn't notice for 15 seconds. And that's yeah. a psychological thing. And maybe the pilot was really convinced that by pulling the throttle all the way back to idle when he touched down, because he didn't put his foot on the brakes and he just wanted to see them work, he totally forgot to pull the thrust reverses and didn't even realize... That that's what he had done. He thought he had pulled them. Furthermore, this was not the last time that Southwest Airlines pilots experienced this difficulty. 
During the development of Southwest Airlines' auto brake program, pilots were concerned with transitioning from auto braking to manual braking after touchdown, and were so distracted with that process that they forgot or were delayed in activating thrust reversers even during training. Although this only happened their first few tries, it still happened. And this was the crew's first try. Right. Yeah, so my point earlier... When you have a new system that's going to be in place, even if it's not in place already, you should probably train everyone how to do it. So at least they know how to do it cognitively so they don't just try it on their own and see how it goes. Because that can be like this was potentially dangerous. Yep. And Uh, if I were them, I would have said, until you are trained, don't use them. Yeah, there's nothing that says you have to use the auto brakes. They only wanted to do it because they knew that their margins were so small. In which case, I would have been just like, go to another airport. Technically, they should have. They should Yeah, they probably should By company standards, they really should have. The yeah. computer was incorrect. Way earlier. When they heard eight knots, they should have been like, nope, we gone. Now, as I mentioned before, air traffic control alerted the crew that conditions were good or fair for, the, for part of the runway, which, based on the results of the crash, was in question. How is the runway surface condition evaluated? We've kind of asked this question before in previous episodes. Turns out, there are three ways, and each has its own limitations. The first and primary method is pilot braking action reports. This is inherently rather subjective, as it is completely human-based and qualitative in nature, not quantitative. It can depend on the pilot's individual experience, as well as the airplane they use when landing. This subjectivity is known by the FAA, and as such, defined a reliable report being from a turbojet airplane, with landing performance capabilities similar to those of the airplane being operated. The second method is the runway contaminant type and depth observations, which is conducted by airport crew. Turns out this is also subjective and depends on the observer's experience and vantage point, as well as when the observation happened, as in some parts of the country, like, oh, say, Chicago, weather can change rapidly. Quote, The FAA has not established and defined a standard correlation between an airplane's braking ability and reports of contaminant depth and type. End quote. Though the EASA and JAA, which are both, I mean, they're FAA's equivalents in Europe, um, they require airlines to account for these conditions and define an acceptable standard for landing, which... I actually know why that is, because I did research on it. Okay. Um, so there was an accident that I will cover in a Miranda episode where runway contaminant via slush was a huge issue. Yep. And not to give too much away, there wasn't really anything that said that deep slush could cause an issue yeah and it it does like a lot which europe figured out yes uh so it is a big deal to have runway contaminant because of any kind especially of like wet snow yeah because you can hydroplane (laughs) not only that but it can actually cause issues with takeoff yep and all this stuff so Point is, there was no standard. Well, there was in Europe, but not here. There was not a standard by the FAA, I should clarify. Yeah. So there is, I'm sure there is now, but... Lastly, is the surface friction measuring devices. These were originally created for maintenance purposes, to measure when a runway needs to be redone. It is not intended for assessing landing quality or performance on a day-to-day basis. Actually, the FAA has said that they cannot be reliably correlated with an airplane performance or pilot braking action reports and should not be used to predict stopping performance. The last bit I have is regarding end-of-runway safety areas. Midway and the FAA had been discussing up to five years previous to this accident, implementing these areas given Midway's vicinity to residential areas, as we had mentioned in this episode and the previous Midway episode, but nothing was ever implemented. They determined that a dimensionally standard RSA of 1,000 feet was not desirable in terms of relocation of local businesses, residences, and roadways, and was also not economically feasible. The alternative was altogether moving the runways, which also sucks. It really doesn't work there. How old is Midway? Very. It was established in 1927. Yeah. So it was real freaking old. Yeah. Well, and that's important only because a lot of airports that tend to be older are in places that tend to have more residential areas. For one. For two, they didn't need super long runways back then. No, because nope. they had smaller planes. And now Midway is a very limited airport because of its size. Yeah. So most jet aircraft can't land there. I just wanted to say that 
it's harder to have more runway space when you don't have a lot of place to put runway space. And they don't have any space. They don't they, have any space. In fact, they're long. The runways are as long as they can possibly get them because they go. They're on the diagonal. Because they go on the diagonals across the square of that is Midway. Midway is literally four square city blocks of airport, full size. In the middle of blocks. Chicago. In the middle of Chicago, and they go diagonally across it for the full the furthest length they can possibly get. On that note, a practicability study was done by Midway regarding an engineering material arresting system, or EMAS, but it concluded there wasn't enough room at the end of the runways for a standard EMAS, though non-standard ones do exist. No conversation took place between Midway and the FAA regarding a non-standard EMAS. The NTSB performed calculations, assuming that there was if there was an EMAS there, and determined that it would have prevented this accident, as it would have stopped the plane on airport property. Midway indicated before the release of the report that EMAS beds would be installed and completed by winter of 2007. EMAS, is that like the collapsible stuff? That is yeah. the collapsing concrete, yes. Airports that have it and have used it would include Burbank. Recently. Very recently. As a matter of fact, last year, uh, there was an airplane in Burbank that, it was a Southwest Airlines, that ended up in the EMAS at the end of the runway because there had been previous incidents where the airplanes had gone through the fence and onto a road. Sounds familiar, right? So, <laughs> so same story. They wanted EMAS then there at Burbank, and they did so. They added EMAS, and it did collect an airplane last year and kept it from going onto a road. Maybe that... that's where I saw it. Yes. So we looked this up earlier, and we can show Miranda in a second. But if you look on Google Maps at Midway and look at the end of the runways, first of all, the concrete is much, much lighter in terms of shades of gray. And if you look really hard, you can kind of see a grid structure under it. That mm -hmm. is the EMAS. Yeah. Yeah. The, the gridding structure is what makes the... The, the EMAS on Midway. It's they're, oh, they're small yeah, yeah. blocks of concrete, and each one of those is very soft concrete. So when the airplane touches that EMAS, it then sinks into that concrete. It collapses. It, it makes it stop. And it, it, it basically it grabs the landing gear and brings the airplane to a pretty sudden stop. But So it's not a comfortable experience. But, but it's better than going on a road. It doesn't do major damage to the airplane, and it keeps the airplane from going into... Fences, roads, and houses. That's, that's the technical term. It arrests the airplane. Yes, it would arrest the airplane. Okay, so findings. So there were 23 findings, but I narrowed them down only slightly. Not much. The NTSB found that the pilots had adequate information about the weather conditions before and during their flight for their arrival airport, Midway. They found that Midway personnel monitored and provided appropriate snow removal on the night of the accident. They found that the Midway Air Traffic Control Tower Controller did not follow Federal Aviation or FAA guidance when he did not provide the required braking action report information to the flight. They found that the pilots did not use the proper term, which would be poor, during their landing distance assessment, which combined with the tailwind limitation, would have required them to divert. They were not in compliance with Southwest Airlines policies for this. They found that if the pilots had been presented with the stopping margins associated with the input winds, or had known that the stopping margins calculated by the onboard performance computer for the 737-700 already assumed credit for the use of thrust reversers, the pilots may have elected to divert themselves. So in other words, they're saying that they didn't know that the thrust reversers were in the calculation. As I discussed. They found that if Boeing's recommended airplane performance data were used in Southwest Airlines onboard performance computer calculations, the resulting negative stopping margins for even fair braking action conditions would have required the pilots to divert. Absolutely. Yeah, because that would have been within the company policy. Then it would have been within the company policy, yes. They found that the use of the onboard computer calculations for landing is critical to a pilot's decision to land. So they, No, really. So they definitely... We're using that as their decision maker. They found that Southwest Airlines did not provide clear and consistent guidance and training to pilots regarding company policies and procedures in several areas, yep. including interpretation of braking action reports and the assumption affecting landing distance assessments. Yep. They found that the pilots would have been able to stop the airplane on the runway if they had commanded maximum reverse thrust promptly after touchdown and maintained maximum reverse thrust to a full stop. 
for the record, I just want to clarify the reason that the calculation still had them. So if they had the eight knot tailwind calculated, it was would have been negative, right? Mm-hmm. The reason that they still would have been able to stop if they'd used maximum thrust reverser is I think that the computer calculation only uses medium thrust reverse, not maximum. It might, but also standard procedures on most airplanes have you releasing and stowing the thrust reversers below about 50 to 30 knots, depending on the airline, the airplane, those things. So they assume you're not going to use the thrust reversers the entire length of the runway. This is saying that they would have been able to stop if they had used it all the way to a complete stop. Got it. Which they probably should have done. Yes, but they didn't know. Yeah, that's true. But if they had, they would have stopped. Yep. They found that the pilot's delay in deploying the thrust reversers cannot be attributed to mechanical or physical difficulties. That one's key. Remember the captain who said he was struggling to to deploy the thrust reversers? Well, they're saying that that's not true. No. Like we said before, it probably had something to do with him being preoccupied and worrying about the auto brakes. More than likely. And he just, it, it wasn't second nature because this is new to them. This right. is the first time they used it. So he might have forgotten because he didn't do his normal thing when he lands. Right. So therefore, forgot. I do want to clarify that that particular assumption that he forgot is purely speculation. Yeah, that's our speculation, but it yes. makes sense to me because that's how humans work. Yep, it, and I think it was the NTSB's assumption too because they had that finding where it says the pilot's delay in deploying the thrust reversers cannot be attributed to mechanical or physical difficulties, followed by this recommendation that says they found that the pilot's first use of the airplane's auto brake system during a challenging landing situation led to the pilot's distraction from deploying the thrust reverser immediately upon touchdown, which is normally routine. So they didn't say it in as many words. They probably did. I shortened this, was this a bit. The, the technical version of yep. what we said. He forgot because this was new to him. Yep. They found that had Southwest Airlines implemented an auto brake familiarization period in advance, such a period would have allowed pilots to become com- comfortable with the changed sequence of landing tasks. Yeah. Like I said, if even if this isn't equipped on every plane you have, eventually... So the pilots are going to come across it somewhere. Right. If you have it on even some of your planes, eventually they may come across a plane that has it. It's better to have them be familiarized with it than not having any training because not all your planes have it. That's just weird to me. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. They found that the implementation of procedures requiring thrust reverser status confirmation immediately after touchdown may have prevented the pilot's inadvertent failure to deploy the thrust reversers after touchdown. So this one's saying that if upon touchdown the it was required that the first officer make a call out make a call out that yeah. says thrust reversers deployed they wouldn't have left 15 seconds without thrust reversers and they would have deployed them. That makes sense. Is that how it is now? This was a recommendation and it was implemented. So yes. So yes. They found that because landing conditions may change during flight, pre-flight landing assessments alone may not be sufficient to ensure safe stopping margins at the time of arrival. Arrival landing distance assessments would provide pilots with more accurate information regarding safety of landings under arrival conditions. So it's saying don't rely on what you find out before you depart. They were given lots of information, and I think this one's a little bit vague, only because... They did have plenty of information. They were discussing it the whole time. They were given information about current landing conditions as they were approaching the airport, all that. They found that although landing distance assessments incorporating a landing distance safety margin are not required by regulation, they are critical to safe operation of transport category airplanes on contaminated runways. That one's pretty straightforward. They wanted better margins. So in other words, more than? More than zero. Zero. (laughs) Yeah, probably should be... Maybe a couple hundred feet. At least. At least. Yeah. Not positive, period. Yeah. That's just not... Not greater than zero. Right. Yeah. They found that guidance on braking action and contaminated type and depth reports would assist pilots, air traffic control, operator dispatch, and airport operations personnel in minimizing the subjectivity and standardization shortcomings of such reports. Making a quantitative way. Because there needs to be one that doesn't rely on equipment not intended for that use. Right. 
So I don't dive into that much deeper than that on that point, but basically they found that, and I think they recommended it too, that they basically there be a specific measurement that says, okay, this would be a safe amount, anything above that of anything, whether it be friction or depth or contaminant type, those things be anything outside deciding of factors. Parameters. Yeah, be deciding factors and be be non-optional and they don't be subjective. Yeah. They found that using the most conservative interpretation of runway braking action or surface condition reports from mixed or conflicting reports would increase the landing safety margin. So just saying be more conservative with it say if it says even if it's even remotely poor, it's poor. It's poor conditions. There's, That's it. Period. There shouldn't be well part of it's maybe poor. No, it's poor. Just assume if part of it's, it's poor, worse. it's poor. Yeah. yeah. That is implemented. They found that establishing a means of correlating the airplane's braking ability with the runway surface condition would provide a more accurate assessment of the airplane's basic landing performance capability. They found that development of an automated runway surface and braking ability measurement system that could communicate with other aircraft would provide subsequent landing aircraft with a valuable information system. I think this would be really cool, but it is not implemented. This one would be really, really difficult to implement, Are these to be findings or... These are findings. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, this would, this is a really, this would be a really difficult thing to implement though, so but I think it's not that it couldn't be done. Basically what they're asking is that each plane have a quantitative measure of whether, like the circumstances of stopping on the runway and be able to relay, relay that to other planes. And I don't think it's that it couldn't be done. There's so many factors that go into it, but basically the airplane would have to calculate, okay, this is how heavy the airplane was on landing. This was the measurement of friction that had occurred. These were all the conditions that happened upon landing. This was what it, this is what it encountered on landing, and this is how quickly it stopped. Then relay that to the other airplane. Then that airplane's computer has to use the data on its weight, size, and, and expected friction given all the data that's from comes from the other airplane to interpret how far the distance is that airplane is needs to land. So have an equation that spits out a constant and that constant be used on a scale to say landable versus not. Right. I think right now that seems a little bit ridiculous, but you never know future technology what that might be able to do. I, I think it's perfectly reasonable. And the thing is, I don't think it's not not being done. I think... Maybe someone's doing it. I'm sure, and I think the A350 already has a beta version of that, basically. Oh, that's cool. The A350, I've seen a few landing videos of it, but the A350 basically can tell you exactly to the foot how far the airplane should stop in almost any condition. Wow. Yep. So it exists, but this is 2005, to be fair. Right. So, and probably when this report came out, actually it was, because this was in December. Back then, that technology probably was a little bit out of reach. Now, not so much, but we are now 14 oh, years in the future. Yeah. 15 years? Yes. So. They found that the absence of an engineering material arresting system installation, or EMAS installation in the limited overrun area for runway 31C contributed to the severity of the accident. So making sure they had a backup. They they yep. really wanted an EMAS system there, and they did. It is not a standard one. It is non-standard, that is correct, because they don't have the distance for a standard one. Nope. But it's better that they have it than not have it at all. Yes. So that's all the findings. Okay, get ready for and mouthful. I'm going to buckle down. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the pilot's failure to use available reverse thrust in a timely manner to safely slow or stop the airplane after landing, which resulted in a runway overrun. This failure occurred because the pilot's first experience and lack of familiarity with the airplane's autobrake system distracted them from thrust reverser usage during the challenging landing. Contributing to the accident were Southwest Airlines 1, failure to provide its pilots with clear and consistent guidance and training regarding company policies and procedures related to arrival landing distance calculations, 2, programming and design of its onboard performance computer, which did not present inherent assumptions in the program critical to a pilot decision-making, 3, plan to implement new autobrake procedures without a familiarization period, and 4, Failure to include a margin of safety in the arrival assessment to account for operational uncertainties. 
Also contributing to the accident was the pilot's failure to divert to another airport given reports that included poor braking actions and a tailwind component greater than 5 knots. Contributing to the severity of the accident was the absence of an engineering materials arresting system, which was needed because of the limited runway safety area beyond the departure end of runway 31C. That was the probable cause. Or causes. It was caused with contributing factors. Yes. That was a, a, a mouthful for sure. Two nice big paragraphs. And it's all basically exactly what we said. So, recommendations. They recommended that there, that there be a requirement for Part 121, or airline transport operators, to conduct arrival landing distance assessments before every landing based on existing performance data, actual conditions, and incorporation of minimum safety margins of 15%. They recommend requiring all Part 121 operators to ensure that all onboard electronic computing devices they use automatically and clearly display critical performance calculation assumptions. They recommend requiring all Part 121 operators to provide clear guidance and training to pilots and dispatchers regarding company policy on surface conditions and braking action reports and the assumptions affecting landing distance slash stopping margin calculations to include use of an airplane ground deceleration devices, wind conditions and limits, air distance, and safety margins. So all of that to say that there be a standardized way of calculating, basically, and, and having guidance and training on it. Yeah. I think that's more of a pew-pew at Southwest, as are, I think, most of the recommendations. Yeah, most of these are directed at 121 operators, which is basically saying Southwest. Without saying Southwest. Yes. So it's not pointed. Right. They recommended that there be a requirement for all 121 operators of thrust reverser equipped airplanes to incorporate a procedure requiring the non-flying or monitoring pilot to check and confirm the thrust reverser status immediately after touchdown on all landings. That's saying having the first officer in this case have the call out that says... Thrust reversers deployed immediately upon deployment, immediately upon touchdown. So, question with that. Mm-hmm. Is that based solely on looking at the throttle console, or is there another indicator that says... There would be an indicator. There's okay. an indicator. And it's actually on the the engine information screens on the 737. It would show you that the, the thrust would actually increase. However, it would also have a thrust uh, a reverser deployment signal on it. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. They recommended requiring that all 121 operators accomplish arrival landing distance assessments before every landing based on a standardized methodology involving approved performance data, actual arrival conditions, a means of correlating the airplane's braking ability, the runway surface conditions using the most conservative interpretation available, including a minimum safety margin of 15%. Taking the runway distance and saying 15%. That's your safety margin, and... So you need to be able to stop within 85% of the runway. And coming up with a standardized way of measuring it. Yep. They recommended establishing a minimum standard for Part 121 operators to use in correlation an airplane's braking ability to braking action reports and runway contaminant type and depth reports for runway surface conditions worse than bare and dry. Basic. They recommended demonstrating the technical and operational feasibility of outfitting transport category airplanes with equipment and procedures required to routinely calculate, record, and convey the airplane braking ability required and or available to slow or stop the airplane during the landing roll. If feasible, require operators to transport of transport category airplanes to incorporate the use of such equipment and relate procedures into their operations. Which is not implemented yet. Right. And like I said, door open. like I said, it's really difficult because you have to, you'd have to create a measurement way that can be consistent on the airplane, and it would have to be mounted on the airplane. It would have to be a system that's probably adding weight, cost, those things to the the, the airplane, and that's difficult. Sounds like a thing Airbus would do, though. Probably, and like I said, they probably are. That's it for recommendations. This was not a super difficult one to figure out. No, no. Kind of guess what would happen based it was on pretty straightforward it was unfortunate no less but you knew early on in the story what would happen yeah yeah basically thanks for listening friends. yeah uh like we said at the beginning of the episode um stay home stay safe so again thank you uh if you need more content content go to patreon 
We got a new Patreon person last week. We forgot if we said thank you to you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, name. That person has a name. We'll we'll get we'll get your name. Thank you for joining Patreon. Uh, we have Miranda shows up there. We have post episodes. We have blooper reels up there now. Yep. Lots of extra stuff coming. Ad-free episodes. So please, 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 if you need extra stuff when you're getting bored like me, because your girl's getting real bored. Thank at you home. to Pontus for becoming a patron. Yes. Yeah. Um, if you're like me and your girl's getting bored, uh, go check out Patreon. You'll never know. You can cancel at any time. Yep. yep. So just keep that in mind. All right. We're in a post episode now. So have a great week. We'll uh, talk to you next week. Yeah. Keep your airspeed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.